Hi, everybody. Welcome to Investment Uncut. Delighted to be joined this week by Graham Young, Trustee Director at Ross Trustees. Graham, welcome. Thanks very much, Dan. Mary, thank you for having me. Welcome, Graham. Before we get started, could you give the listeners, I suppose, a sense of your current role, but also a very high-level view of the journey that got you there? Fine, sure. So I've been a professional trustee for just over a year now. I joined Ross Trustees in March last year, fully accredited. So I do the usual trustee stuff. I have a range of trusteeships, either sole trustees or broader groups that's out there. But to all of that, clearly, as you allude to, I bring a long background in investment. I started as an investment consultant back in the days when investment consultancy was very new. But watched as an actuarial trainee, did a bit of pensions, a bit of life, a bit of general And then some guy called Roger Irwin joined us to start an investment business, which was a man and two dogs on day one. He was a man and I was a dog. (laughs) And the rest, as they say, is history. I spent a while in consulting, thought I'd jump the fence to see the real world of investing by working for asset manager. Did that for a few years. And then spent eight years in the 2000s working in the hedge fund industry, in what we actually call the wider fields. So working with hedge fund managers and investors on particularly aspects around risk, hedging, portfolio construction. Uh, that became a bit challenged at the end of the end of the 2000s. I moved back to consulting, advising uh, trustees and companies for a few years, but just a little bit missed the buzz of asset management for the previous eight years before joining Ross at BlackRock, where I was running relationships across some of the bigger, more complicated, dare I say, more demanding clients that's there. So I've been up or down the investment food chain, depending how you view it. I'd argue I'm probably towards the top of it at the moment, but others may argue that I'm towards the bottom of it. But it's a conversation we can have. <laughs> yeah, it's great. No, that it's brilliant. That sets up a great conversation. I mean, as I say, we're, we're talking to you obviously as a trustee today, but also as someone with with quite a lot of experience in, in a range of roles. So hopefully we can we can sort of get onto all of that as, as we go through. Graham, we're really keen to hear what's one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV. I race off road off road motorbikes across deserts. If you're familiar with the Dakar Rally, that is my sport. I haven't wow. raced the Dakar itself, but I've raced world championship events below that. I have raced to Dakar in Senegal. And in normal times, which I'll be reversing, I would be in the desert a couple of times a year on the bike, middle of nowhere, phone off, not thinking about pensions one little bit. Fantastic. And is that, I mean, I don't know anything about that as a sport. Is it a group thing? Would you be there with lots of people on motorbikes or is it a solo sport, really? In terms of traveling, I've got a group of friends I ride and race with. A good old friend of mine, a lady called Patsy Quick, was the first British woman ever to finish Dakar. She runs a support team. She looks after us with the crew. But when, during the day, you're generally out by yourself. And you can stop and see nobody and see nothing for five, ten minutes. Think you're lost and get going again. <laughs> Very mind-clearing. I guess it, from the perspective of a profession that thinks a lot about risk, is it not a little bit dangerous? Let's go ask the obvious question. The phrase I always use is I'm an actuary, so I'm professionally boring. Doesn't mean I need to be socially boring as well. <laughs> risk that you take without knowing is dangerous. Risk that you take a view of, you take, you manage, you expose yourself, you hedge yourself, I suppose, to the extent you can do. Yes, it is dangerous. It's probably no more dangerous than many, many other sports out there. Certainly safer than skiing, I'd argue. But, uh, although I have got bits of metal in my body and seven broken ribs too, uh, to speak for it. But that's probably a separate conversation. <laughs> oh dear, should we move swiftly on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're, we're all waiting for the blog entitled What Racing Motorbikes in the Desert Can Teach Us All About Risk Management. It sounds uh, like it's, it's there to be written. I like that. I'll make a note of that one. Thank you for the idea. <laughs> Fantastic. So as we kick off the conversation, Graham, you wrote a blog quite recently, although I think it was before recent events kicked off in in late February. So let us know if any of it changes. But the blog was titled 12 Things to Ask Your Investment Consultant. You obviously have sat on that side of the fence. You sat on the asset management side of the fence a bit more recently. um, And now you're sitting as a trustee. So it was written from effectively advice to other trustees, wasn't it? 
Yes, very much so. And you're right. I think it came out just towards the end of January. Um, and there'll be another one. There'll be another one towards similar sort of time, probably after Easter now. The idea just being that for better or for worse, we as trustees find ourselves sitting down quarterly for meetings. And I've got a few thoughts, which I highlighted there. I'm sure we'll touch now just a bit about how, how those can be a bit more useful. So we now think, right, the world has changed a bit. Some things have changed a lot more than some other things. There'll be other questions to be asked in a few weeks' time, and there'll be another one. And just to be clear, it's a question to ask consultants and asset managers as well, is to ask your investment. Let's call it the investment people around your table rather than use the phrase advisors, which can be a bit more a bit more formal. Yeah, okay. So why these questions and why now? Sure. I went back on after the last week preparing for this this chat. I uh, looked at what I'd said there and what and why. And I think there are a couple of themes behind it, one of which we'll come back to again, which is my big question as a trustee, it has been two trustees being on the other side of the table, is don't ask what, ask so what. We spend a lot of time as trustees. I spent a lot of time as a consultant, so as a manager, telling people what is happening what is going on and then what we think will happen and boy is that a rabbit hole we can go down <laughs> and then after a 10 minute presentation thoughts of the work from the wise it's then oh by the way you're okay you don't need to rebalance or anything else move on i want to turn the whole conversation around so first from the, from the trustee side of the table trustee sponsor side is we know what is going on in the world we can see that what should we do with that and maybe the answer is nothing but we still need to know what's going on or what does that mean for us and our scheme and our journey and our sponsor and our covenant and everything else around that so that was part of it it was to take that take that position back and the other thing is about being nimble nimble is a phrase i've used for many many years those of you people of my age listening to this may remember that nimble used to be a variety of bread but we're not gonna go down that analogy because i can't remember the exact slogan they used but being nimble does not mean every day picking up the phone and trading by any means whether that's your individual scheme or anything else it means working within the timescales that markets offer you that things can be done and to my mind particularly it means having a plan having a long-term plan having a few plans around that and the ability to change plan to accelerate to decelerate to stop to pause to restart that plan over time and i would encourage fellow trustees to be doing that as much as just being washed along by world events and world actions and then looking back and thinking oh we could have done something done something yes and these sort of meetings these sort of conversations are the something you should be doing yeah, I couldn't agree more with that first point. Well, it said, don't say what, say so what. Yes, yes. I might have to might have to steal that phrase. Did you invent that or is it, have you got that from someone else? Couldn't call it from anybody else. It came up in my notes as I made this thing, as I did this thing last week. So, Wow. Okay. Well, I think you, Original, might, have to, yeah. you might have to copyright that right now because that, <laughs> that sounds brilliant. But to dig on that a little bit then, implicitly, are you saying that you think people spend too much time talking about what and not enough on so what? Is that is that what you're getting at? I think that's time. And I think in terms of the, and this widen out again to my my scheme table at which I sit at the trustee, not the head by any means. It's not even my table. It's actually the sponsor's table that I'm sitting at. But around that table are people with investment expertise. And a lot of the time those individuals spend internally as organisations, but certainly the people who then find themselves in front of trustees spend is on saying what has happened. We've all sat there in the, we're sitting here now, it's the start of April, the next set of meetings will talk about what's gone in the world to the end of the year, because that was the information the manager had. And a lot of it is what, and it's true, and it's factual, and some of it can be insightful, but generally it's just repeating what has happened, rather than what does that mean. And as an industry, we are very subject to regret risk hindsight risk and we can think about the current situation perhaps in some ways there is we do and we have done for a long time of our careers we've said oh 
we could see that happening. Now, what do we do? Whether that thing was rising inflation, it's equity market volatility, there's always some sort of generally accepted, which was always a possibility. It was never a true black swan. But we as the industry wait till it's happened and say, how do we react? Not saying we should preempt and be tactical, but just have a bit of a plan were this to happen. What if interest rates do continue to go down over the last 10 years rather than revert to a normal? What would that mean for our scheme, for our funding, for our hedging, whatever else? What would that look like? And maybe those questions weren't being asked as much as they were, as I hope they are now. We'll come back to the interest rate point because I definitely want to pick up on that. But I, just as you were talking then, I, a thought sprung to mind, which I think now is probably the right time to ask it. So as a consultant, I have different groups of trustees some of whom really enjoy having managers in and some of whom have very little interest in having managers in unless there's a problem. You've obviously fairly recently sat on the manager side of this scale and I'm really interested in your view on, and maybe it's just different groups is the right answer for different groups is different, but what's the right period of time that you should see managers? Should you ever see managers? Is there a a frequency that, that is preferable from your perspective? I think behind that, there's a mindset and it's a question that trustees need to ask themselves. And this doesn't matter whether it's a professional trustee, if a professional is a sole trustee or a lay trustee of whatever form it's out there. Trustees need to ask themselves, what am I looking to get from this interaction, this conversation with the manager? There's no doubt that way back in history, and I'm not going to critique the investment consultancy profession because I was one of the earlier people within it that's out there. But there was definitely a feeling... Do it, Graham. Do it. We, we, we can take it. We can take <laughs> yeah. it. Come on. No, there's, there's some, there's some hard balls I'm sure as we go through later and hard felt yeah. but just generally I'm not going to lay into it by any means but there's a feeling that the consultant should rightly put himself herself between the client and the managers that the managers are dishonest sneaky overly commercial individuals and organizations which which, which can't run can't run themselves, need to sell or missell products to clients, confuse clients in doing so. And at the same time, that trustee groups are simple, simple folk, not not, not intellectually, but just you know, one dimensional, want to look at things that's out there. Don't necessarily understand what the managers are saying and certainly would not be able to put it in the context of, of so what that's out there. There's a lot of waffle spoken, shall we say, and trustees couldn't cut through that. That's a long way of saying, ideally, as a trustee, and I'd encourage every other trustee listening to it, you should have a relationship as a trustee board with your, let's call it the key managers in doing that. And that relationship is more than just know who they are and have someone who you pick up the phone and complain to when the reports are late. And that should run ideally alongside your investment consultant relationship. I personally would have no issue whatsoever in running it behind the back of the investment consultant were the consultant to be getting in the way. But by that time, it's probably time for discussion around the, about the consultant relationship that you've got. And by key there, I mean the managers who you will be with for a fair period of time, who say those who are running a large amount of your risk potentially, but most importantly, the managers who have got broad experience of working with people like you to address, let's call it the UK pension fund challenge in doing so, because I want to pick up the ideas and the thoughts that they've got. And that, maybe the LDI manager, the credit manager, might be a private market manager in doing so that's out there. To be honest, if you can't conceive of meeting all your managers on some sort of frequency, and I'll get back to your question in a minute, Mary, you've got too many managers. And we can move on that as well. Frequency-wise, it's well, whatever I need to understand, so what rather than what. At the moment, there are managers, certainly my roster, who I want to talk to because they as a business have got great expertise and insight into commodities, emerging markets. They may not be running that for me, but I know I've got an into them in doing so. That's a long way of saying more than they do should definitely not feel out of the way and should have a, an open relationship with those organisations. 
And coming back to some of those questions, I suppose, that you might ask the managers, back to the blog again, inflation and interest rates are clearly key themes that you were calling out there. But I guess the way that you were trying to position those questions, it, it goes back to that so what thing. You're, you're presumed doesn't seem like you're after what's happened. You're not asking them to tell you what inflation did in the last quarter, but more what's the implication for the risk to us, the hedging, the caps and floors, what's the future trajectory of rates mean for us kind of thing. Is that where you were trying to point people? Exactly. And if you remember the time this was written, this is coming out as well, thinking pre-Christmas and running into the year end that's out there. Again, it's a little bit of that hindsight bit. Is there was still enough talk? You could see inflation was picking up. You could have enough stories in the UK. The energy story perhaps not totally being reflected there. But this is not something great prescient thought I was having. Conversations we'd be having around this. So you're quite right at one point, Dan. This is about saying, that's happening. We can see it. We can see it in the press. We can see it on on podcasts or whatever else is out there, what does it mean for us? It was also about saying, well, the obvious ones we've got, yes, okay, we're hedging inflation, so we're okay. Let's dig deeper into what we're hedging and how we're hedging it, what does that mean is going on there? But slightly wider, you know, what will it what will it mean? What will it mean wider trustee-wise? My pension increases, okay, fine, but I'll be capped for a while at 3%, I'll still be there. All those sort of implications. And then a bit wider as well into, you know, so what, what does it mean for my sponsor? Inflation takes place in the future. All these things come together in the trustee mind around that table, which investment people don't necessarily see and bring together. It's one of the things I find fascinating being on this role here now is you see all of that. So as again, it's a, I'm not going to keep coming back to the what, not so what, even though you've made me quite excited about this now, Dan. It's thinking about that whole implication across the whole of the scheme. And the other thing I'm conscious of, I suppose, is we are, I'm not an economist, I'm not going to call your obvious next question as to where rates and inflation go, but we're in an environment where we are more likely to see rising rates. We're more likely to see prolonged inflation for a while. I don't think any of us would disagree with that. And there's not a lot of experience around the pensions industry of having seen and done that before. I'm not saying you have to live through the 70s, man and boy. And it probably was man and boy at the time as a trustee to see that. But people who've seen and thought through what's the wider implications of an inflationary environment. How does the UK differ from Japan in its last decades? Does it not differ? That sort of thinking needs to come out and be seen rather than just, hey, inflation's gone up now. It's all Russia, Ukraine. It'll sort itself out again and RPI will be back to normal. Some thinking about, well, what if it's not? What else could be? Again, that, that using of smart knowledge so we don't get caught out by hindsight, I suppose. The long way of answering that and also avoiding the question as to what's actually going to happen in markets. Yeah, well, it, it means, I was just looking at the date of the piece, actually. It was published in, I didn't realize that, published in the 21st of January, and you're saying you were writing it kind of pre-Christmas. But to be honest, most of it actually stands out pretty well. Even a few months later, they're still the right questions, I guess, to be asking, because they're, they're quite big themes. And to be honest, that's part of the challenge I've got. I'm not saying for one minute that I'm some sort of investment guru or outlook. None of this was radical thinking at the time. We just completely a bit wider. The challenge I've got now is that this has become, uh, some of this is, is, is on one's topic, what should we think about next quarter? Maybe a lot of this was some of the same, some of the same things, but what has changed? What has gone on there? So, but anyways, it's the volatility, it's the changing of rates and inflation, which is as much on, or should be as much on people's minds rather than absolute levels. So, I was in a conversation last week with a trustee of a, an unnamed scheme. He said, it's like, oh, we're fine, actually. We've got a raft of members who are on 010, 010 caps. So we're great. And we said, uh, you do realise that the forward inflation prediction for think, September, October is 10 and a half. So you might be capped. Oh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so little snippets like that. Just, just bring out some, uh, some realisation. It's going to affect um, schemes in many different ways, not just, oh, I need to redo my LDI portfolio. So some some of what you've just described, I mean, I, I love the inflation example because you effectively just gave a tangible example of integrated risk management in practice, which was fantastic, I thought. In terms of how formal some of these conversations are, and maybe there is no right answer here, but 
trusty meeting time is precious, as I'm sure you you know from being involved for a year now. And some conversations happen in a very formal way. There is a paper, it gets discussed, it gets sent in advance. And perhaps there's less discussion around that aspect because it's been written down and you could have read it in before the meeting. And then you get other bits of the meeting that are perhaps more open forum. A lot of what you've just described sounded to me a little bit more open forum. But of course, you're you're sitting in that room around that table with a, a long history of investment expertise. Um, I just wonder how how do you bring other trustees with you in that conversation? Do you make it a more formal part of the agenda? Do you have a paper to refer to or is it more open? Ideally, it is, is a, a paper to refer to because it helps everyone, you know, a trustee's experience of otherwise, get the thoughts together beforehand. And I'm not going to sit here and crack the whip on the amount of time trustees need to spend on their own knowledge and understanding. But if any trustees turning up at the meeting having not actually read what's there beforehand, then I know there are a thousand page papers packed out there, but um, something's wrong with the governance, the scheme, whether it's the individuals or it's, or it's the way the advisors are done. So you're right, time is tight. And I see this conversation kicking off from the papers that say you, you as the investment consultant, you know, think about it. So rather, and I've seen enough papers of this is what's going on in the world. Here's a big economic view. Here's the view from our economist, blah, 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 blah. Here's your portfolio. This is on this. And then a little bit at the end of an outlook. In some ways, a lot of that is wasted paper it's certainly wasted time to discuss in the meeting unless there's something particularly from that so there's a case for a paper which says okay we've seen what's going on in the world here is attached our paper and our thought on the world whatever else for your scheme this is what seems particularly important to us to me as your investment advisor we should be looking at this this and this and let's use our time in the meeting next tuesday whatever else to do that to answer these questions in doing so and so that can be pre-steered and if needs be that comes with here is the background to well, this is what inflation is looking like and this is a reminder as to how interest rates and inflation impact your liabilities no LDI for the rights of a trust and you can judge the trustee group level how much reminding they need in that briefing paper but the paper is aimed at a discussion at the meeting around this thing which you as the advisor may want to steer someone towards doing something you may know that the trustees want to steer there the chair of trustees may have taken you there whatever else it's just something you're seeing other schemes doing and you wish this group would do something around it but you've got a role there but at least still, still have so the trustees i always feel a bit exposed in, in the meetings one of many trustees when everyone turns to you for what do you think on investment because you know what i think about investment you can just listen to this for half an hour you can save yourself asking the question but i'm not the only trustee in some cases i'm not even a formal trustee with a capital t that's there it needs to be a broader ownership and if we the industry can't get that right and that ownership then something's going wrong in the governance it's the responsibilities on your side to make it clear and relevant on our side to also be relevant and give the message back and to listen and to take action as and when required which we'll i'm sure we'll come on to later on that point, how are you thinking or how, how do you think most trustee groups are thinking about where they do spend their time and attention? Because that's, like we said, that's probably one of the most scarce, precious resources, isn't it, out there in that governance? Yeah, I think struggling is quite a judgmental view, but it's a continual battle for time that's out there. And I'm not here to sell the professional trustee role or the sole role, whatever else, but that's clearly been one of the drivers towards bringing in more professional trustees, carving out investment subcommittees. Even if you haven't got a subcommittee, they're having a working group to look at something. It's This is done between meetings, and I've certainly got things to say about meeting frequency as we go through. It is a, yeah, it is a struggle because no one is taking anything off the agenda. Nothing is coming off. No regulation is being retired. No issues are being moved away. Into IRM, integrated risk management, is not taking a few other bits off. Agendas are only growing. Time requirement is growing, which brings a challenge itself for trusteeship. But you've 
then that's why you've got to be efficient in doing that. You know, wasting time without a clear plan. It certainly still still goes on far more than I would like to, to hope it would do. But I can try and do my bit, try and do our bit, and you can try and do your bit just by getting almost evidencing what is a good meeting, what works well, and what is what is still less efficient practice. Yeah, but I want to pick up on the point about meeting frequency. You, you, you mentioned it. Why not? Let's cover that now, shall we? What's your thoughts on that? Sure, yeah. Well, there's a view in the wider industry, and let's sort of take my trustee hat off and go back to sort of the asset manager of days. Some of the advisor consultants days, not just the investment consultants. The UK pension fund industry is and always will be very slow moving, and it is because trustees are lay people. That's fine. And you meet quarterly, and everything's on a quarterly cycle. And to get anything done takes nine months because you've got to float an idea, discuss an idea, decide an idea, and then it'll happen in doing so. And I still see that, and I still hear that happening. And I would just push back from this side of the table to say, that's not necessarily the case. There are, no, there are trustee groups of schemes who are out there who are very happy running in that way, that inefficient way, I would argue personally. But there are plenty of others out there where the scheme has settled into that, and it's become a very comfortable way of working for everybody including the trustees, but also all the advisors. How many times do I still hear, we'll do a paper for the next meeting, we'll bring this to the next meeting. If it's that important, and it's not just investment matters, there are other matters as well. I think COVID showed us one thing, it's the importance of being really up on your covenant and your sponsor's business and decisions were there, were being made in almost real time, in a really good, encouraging way to me as a, an ex-investment <laughs> investment banking person, asset management person, something can't be done quick enough. So there's always the ability to, to meet between meetings, to decide between meetings, certainly do work in between meetings. The virtual world has really opened up the possibility to meet far more frequently, far more often than before. You're not just bringing 15 people to a meeting room in Coventry or rugby or something in three months' time that's got to be planned. If it's important, you could have a call at 5.30 this afternoon, tomorrow and everywhere else, and do that around that. And I think it's a challenge I would throw back to your side of the industry is just to make sure that you are up and with that way of working and if that means that you can't just turn the handle on the quarterly report and rely on that because it'll be out of date by the time great stop turning the handle come with something else there'll be times we don't need to talk for months I mean, we're in a it's always an interesting time in the markets isn't it we're in a dynamics position at the moment we can't go three months without talking but there will be periods of time where that's fine there'll be other things to use the time and dare i say investment will not be the most important thing on the schemes agenda it may not even be the most important thing on our agenda <laughs> there'll be other things going on but shocking idea i know i know it's heresy sorry you can edit that bit out if you want <laughs> <laughs> no, now you've said that we're definitely keeping it in <laughs> just i suppose really interested because i've certainly seen a trend towards on some of my schemes more frequent and shorter meetings and, and those meetings being more focused and some of them being much more sort of ad hoc which I think makes perfect sense particularly particularly to be honest particularly for investment matters where generally markets are more dynamic than some other aspects of pension scheme management hopefully that's not unfair an unfair comment just in terms of I suppose what I haven't necessarily seen yet is a move away from there being a meeting that probably is still quarterly that is the more formal version of the meeting even if you then have some interim meetings in terms of agenda setting for that formal meeting, I suppose, again, taking your inflation example, with that example, you almost want to have an agenda item, which is inflation, and you have a paper or discussion from your actuarial advisor on pension increases, from your investment advisor on hedging related things, from your covenant advisor on the impact on sponsor covenant. I would love agendas to move away from being in silos, but I don't see that happening. And I just wondered whether you've got any views on that. I'm totally with you. It is a thematic agenda there are lots of governance things that have to be done at the meeting that you will appreciate i 
sort of appreciate it, but now sitting on the other side with my sort of chair of trustees tick list, I fully appreciate it has to be done that's out there. But then thematic approaches, I'm fully, fully in favour. I don't know, I've not enough experience of proportion on this, but um, I've certainly seen meetings where that has been the case, where it's usually been a question, if you like, it's been a discussion around the, the, so what are we going to do rather than what's the output out there? So, hey, we are, investment strategy is the classic one, but okay, this maybe inflation is just a really good topic. You know, here we go, we're doing this. How will it impact maybe investment? The actor is there because it may impact the journey plan. We're probably not getting into the details of you know, liability linkages or anything else. It's starting to happen. You can't just suddenly go from you know, four formal quarterly meetings a year to that sort of way of doing things in one big step. But cer- and certainly, hey, I would, I would welcome that conversation with all of my advisors where, I, where I'm chair, investment committee chair, trustee chair, whatever else. As to how are we going to do this? How are we going to bring this idea forward? It relies on the advisors working together, which is not anathema by any means they generally work quite nicely and my experience as well within a firm as across a firm dare i say so but that you can't do it every meeting you don't need to do it every meeting but that, that sort of idea if we brought this idea to you i think has got some legs behind it and i i, I know my colleagues as well at ross would be totally open to that sort of a, that sort of approach to make everyone's time more efficient now, clearly you end up down the extreme you end up in the sole trustee world and that thing happens a lot easier because you've got a smaller group people you already have to speed and in many cases time Time isn't the constraint because you're doing a lot of the governance stuff very quickly and very efficiently. So the time you have got, you can spend on these bigger issues. Not supposed to be an advert for sole trusteeship at all, but just recognising that the demands. Alternatively, you've, I've got schemes who've never had investment committees. Now having investment committees, having working groups, having an admin committee, having a GMP committee, working group, whatever else. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be decision taking. As long as it's got a mechanism to get that ratified by the full trustee board. Graham, I was going to try and pivot at this point and talk a little bit more about sort of really kind of investment-y strategy type stuff, which I know you'll be excited about. But you made a couple of observations in that piece that we keep talking about on the sort of strategy and, and take the point that those those were written a little while ago now. So, so maybe the specifics of it not so relevant, but just how you're thinking about things like the cheapness or otherwise of uh, corporate bonds, the cheapness or otherwise of UK equities and those sort of things. Now that you're on the trustee side of the role, if you like, how are you seeing trustees thinking about that and trying to wrestle with how they can make the most of those things? I suppose behind this is a little bit of a sense of frustration I've had over the years, which is going to sound odd coming from an actuary, but you know, the obsession of the industry with models model risk, model return, or whatever else. And I've sat there a number of times thinking, we'll come back to those examples in a minute, but let's think about you know, sterling currency hedging. We can all do the risk analysis, which tells us that if I hedge a third, a half, 25% of my currency my exposure, then I'm in a better place than if I leave it unhedged. Fine. But that decision cannot be taken in isolation of whether you know, sterling is at $2 to the pound or $1.30 to the pound. It can't be an isolated just a risk thing. And so how can that sort of advice be continual over time? And I think I felt a little bit the same around you know, credit. For all good reasons, we're not going to explore now. The UK pension funds will invest more in credit over time for all sorts of good reasons. You've explored many, many other times as have other people in the industry. So the amount that you hold Maybe on that day you do the transaction with the insurance company, that's where you're going. Maybe that's a fixed number, but that pace to get there can only, to my mind, be driven by what's available and how much is it. And if it's cheap, I'll buy some more. And if it's expensive, I will not buy some more. And ultimately, if it's really expensive, may I actually sell some of what I've got? Ooh, ooh. That's a little bit sort of transactionally and tradey, isn't it, it's out there? And hence, the amount I should have in credit this year, or assuming I'm on a multi-year journey towards some sort of end state, can only be a factor of what's the price. And the price is the price. And we can debate the price. We can say it's too high. We can say it's too low. And people have gone mad over the years. And people have written hedge fund books sitting in the shelves behind me who thought they could tell you what was going to happen. 
very hard to do. But the price of the price is telling you something. Um, and I think there's an, there's an analogy there on the UK story. I, mean, I came into this industry, I'm not going to play the Greybeard bit, but at a time when UK equities were probably 60% of scheme holdings that's out there, and UK pension funds were the biggest holders of the UK, et cetera, et cetera. And then globalization of equity portfolios took off and then went to the extreme where the UK is, well, it's just a tip more. 1.10%, probably less than 10% weighting in the world. That's naturally what we should have. For all the reasons that of home bias, of sterling exposure and everything else, that's got to be price dependent as well. That view of the UK is just a component of the world as opposed to a strategic overweight can't be the same if the UK is 20% more expensive on a PE basis than the rest of the world or 20% less in doing so. And it's been quite gratifying to see the conversation over the last year or so looking far more sectorally and saying, oh, yes, but UK exposure, it's not just because, hey, it's the UK and we're all flag-waving UK fans, they're different stocks. Now, maybe those are stocks we don't want for ESG-like reasons and everything else, or maybe those are stocks we do want for defensive reasons, but at least we're discussing structure of market a bit more, and the price is clearly a big part of that. And Now, back to your underlying question, Dan, I can talk about this for a long time. I'll talk around it, you know, tables and conversations I have, we talk about it internally, I'm sure people might other people like me in the industry are talking about this i don't hear it a lot from the broader trustee group and i certainly don't hear it from the advisor group I'm not saying the advisors are missing this but there's been a lot of a lot of weight a lot of history a lot of people have grown up as an investment consultant with some real true mantras they must follow the best place to be is to be fully hedged on rates and inflation global equity should be globalized you no know, credit should be sterling with 20 percent overseas you know, currency should be half hedged whatever they've grown up with that as the mantra just the same as the mantra as well interest rates will only fall and inflation is not a problem you know some of that needs to be something questioned over time i'm not going to make a, a bold call one way or the other but the question is that still the case the equity exposure if that was applicable when we had two-thirds of asset in equity is it still applicable when we've got 10% and it's shrinking? And we've maybe got it for two or three years. Oh, two or three years sounds like a tactical view. Oh, how do I factor that in my decision-making? And that's another theme. And back to my nimbleness point again, how schemes have not got the timescale we once had. You're now, the position you're in at the moment, you're probably going to be buying your end game assets. The thing you're buying now, you're probably not going to sell. And the industry's, the industry's quite good at identifying, this is a good asset to buy. It's really, really bad at saying this asset now is the time to sell it. You won't need it at the end, but is now the time to sell equity? It was six months ago, will six months be? We need to be a bit better, a bit more nimble on that on all sides of the table. So, sorry, Dan, a long, long answer. Yeah, no, it was, that was great. I was, calls, but. I was, I'll come back to the nimbleness bit in a second, but look, I, I couldn't agree more that we don't question some of those fundamental conventional wisdoms as often as we, we should do and that we should be a little bit more open to kind of at least understanding the thinking behind them so you can make the case rather than just assuming that it's always going to be true. I think that's really important. But it definitely links back to the nimbleness point, doesn't it? Because like you say, if you are as a trustee group, as opposed to an asset manager, trying to make the most of credit spreads being high or low or whatever, you are going to have to react quickly to that and have a presumably a framework for how you're going to do it. Yes. Yeah. It's absolutely not being nimble in response to what you've heard and what you've learned. To be honest, you can call me a cynic if you want, but by the time the asset manager has got their head around what's going on in the world and communicated it to the investment consultant, to the trustees, that trade has gone. It still may be worth doing, but the original spark is way, way back arbitraged out on a prop desk or a hedge fund somewhere at the micro level. Now, this is about saying, here, here's my plan, what I want to do ideally over time, and thinking pre-thinking and, and triggers are well established clearly in, in, in this industry what would i do if something changes that and maybe it's just a, a pause i think maybe it's not we're talking days here not months we're not talking seconds either that's why 
the, the nimbleness is out there. I want to buy this thing. It's now cheaper. Should I buy more of it? It's more expensive. Should I still do it? Having that thinking in the cold light of day when the world is more settled and whatever form into a thinking strategy in that rare time, Mary, you've got the meeting, think it through such that when that thing, that opportunity comes or that risk appears, you've got some pre-thinking to go back and say, we're still right. We're still good there. We spent weeks getting that thing together with LCP, getting that plan. Is that still valid? Fine. Good. Go. Done. And that's a very quick decision rather than trying to get the speed at the time. So. Some of, that, some of that time gets wasted because the opportunity does not arise, but such is the nature, such is the nature of investment. And so you referred just, I know what you just talked about wasn't triggers specifically, but you referred to triggers. I'm really interested in your view on automatic versus quick sense check triggers. Depends what you're doing with it, to be honest. If you are merely buying more of something you've already got, I think an automatic trigger is absolutely fine. So I've got I've got my, head, my hedge ratios here. I want to be hedged in line with my funding level. My funding level's picked up. I move the hedge. Uncontentious, no brain in doing so. I suppose and I could be a bit of an oddity here. I still value a little bit of a human input at that point as to say, is this really a stupid thing to do sort of thing? But whether that is, and that's partly that's personal view perhaps, whether that is the consultant, the asset manager, probably not the trustee, fine. But that's very much the question. Is this going to look very, very stupid? Is this, is, could this be a data spike? Is this, by the time I've transacted, has it gone back? That sort of thing. So I think that sort of trigger, doing more of what I've already got, absolutely should be automatic with a, is this a daft thing to do, sort of final reflection. I think more generally, we're going to buy, we're going to expand. Higher yielding credit spreads move out compared to investment grade. We're going to do a bit more about that. We're going to now feed the money into our private market portfolio. Bigger decisions, bigger discussions, I suppose. I think that's a flag. It's a flag for people. And again, bear in mind, in this day and age, we, we ultimately decision makers, can meet almost at a drop of a hat for something that's important. Sponsors are certainly very keen to do that as well. But again, it's not that we'll bring it to the next meeting. It might be a, let's have a call this week. It might be a meeting to talk today, depending on what it is. But again, that could be pre-decided. It doesn't have to be Mary saying, oh, no, I've just seen this thing elsewhere. I need to get my client up to speed. Well, this was the plan, the plan of doing that. So... And I think that's a really important element of it, isn't it? So either you've done lots of pre-thinking on a brand new idea, or at least you know your investment strategy, your current strategy, and the component parts and what they're doing for your portfolio well enough that if your consultant comes and says, this opportunity has just arisen, it's a new thing in the market, whatever it is, this is how it fits in your strategy, this is the component it replaces or adds to, then the trustees sort of think, okay, well, I'm familiar with my structure, I know what each component part needs to do, and so I can see very clearly whether this fits into it from my perspective or not absolutely totally and i think in many ways the most important phrase you use in that that statement you might not remember until you go back and look at the recording of this it's the and what do you sell to buy it we're really really good no we've been talking for long enough now let's be friends you investment consultants are really really good at finding new ideas and new managers and it's great and it's wonderful and it feeds research teams and everything else and it's exciting work but at the end of the day i haven't got a pot of money in the corner I'm going to sell something. And what do I sell? That's always the first question I would ask as, as managers and advisors who work with me know. So what does this replace? No, great. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with selling it. There's a cost to do something. You factor all that in. But always come with that point of it. So that way I'm thinking, absolutely. But again, the thinking's been done. We want more of this sort of thing. This is this sort of thing. It's become available now. We've got it's up on the secondary market. You haven't got time to get me onto the secondary market and how pension funds should be using it so much more, certainly on the way out as on the way in than they have been. But Bring those ideas. So if, you, if you've done your planning, you've got your thoughts, then you can move 
again, my point 10 minutes or so ago, the trustees don't necessarily need to be the hold up, the grit in these decision-making rules. And anyone who thinks they are is probably not either challenging their trustees enough or confident enough of their own views and position around that table. That's really interesting. I mean, Graham, one thing we wanted to, to ask you, because obviously a lot of our listeners are consultants and asset managers, and I know they'll they'll, get, they'll derive a lot of value from hearing what you're saying as a trustee. We, want, we wanted to ask you, what do consultants miss and what do asset managers miss? I mean, you've already gone through so many, so let me just try and tick some of them off. So to consultants, you're saying, focus on the so what, do the pre-thinking, challenge conventional wisdoms, don't always assume that trustees are, are your decision-making hold up, move things along a little bit faster, be nimble. I think that's probably... The, all the ones I can remember. But what, what else would you say consultants miss? And then we'll maybe come on to asset managers after that. Fine. Okay. For consultants, I think the first thing they miss is investment consultants love purity, investment purity. <laughs> this is the best manager because, and it could be because of qualitative research. It could be because of quantitative research. Hey, I'm an actuary. I do numbers, you know, but this is the best manager. And these are the best person at investing in this thing that's out there. And hence you must invest in this. Fine. The trustee role and boys has been one of the most enjoyable parts of my job is to take a step back and say, okay, fine. They may be the best manager in that area. How does that fit with the other managers that I've got? How does it fit with my governance abilities? How does it fit with my ultimate end plans? How does it fit with my sponsor and their view in the world on doing something? How does it fit with overriding things, thoughts about, I don't know, solvency, about ESG issues that I'm aware of that you actually may not be aware of, deliberately or otherwise on your side of the time. And you know what? Thank you very much for bringing that best idea. But I'm going to go with the second best in your mind idea because that organization, that strategy fits so much better with everything that I'm doing. And that shouldn't be new. Ideally, that wouldn't be news to you as the advisor because you have that understanding with the client. But please don't do actually what someone's trying to do to me at the moment is to say, that's all very well and good, but that's not the best investment idea. How can you do that? This is the best one. You must do that. You, firstly, whose table is this? But secondly, you're down to the one UCI. You're, you're doing something which I'm not going to repeat on the podcast as a terminology, but you're getting so obsessed by the numbers and the purity of what you're doing, you're missing the small picture, let alone the big picture. So that's the first one. It's not just about the best manager. The other thing is trustees aren't stupid. We know that investment consultancy is a commercial operation. The days when it was a hobby job for someone on the side of being an actuary have long, 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 long gone. You're a commercial organization, we're a professional trustee firm, we're a commercial organization. Everyone listening to this podcast is a commercial organization. So you can come along and say, look, it's a really good idea. And we actually worked out the best way to implement this is with a fund that we've got. We think that risk transfer is the right thing for you. And here's my risk transfer colleague in doing so. You've all got commercial considerations. Just be open about them. There's no issue about that. What will and does frustrate trustees is you go through the whole discussion at the last minute. Oh, by the way, to do this, you've got to recruit me or pay me whatever else. Hold on, I didn't realise that. So be open. Be open about it. There's nothing dirty and sordid about being a commercial organisation. And the other thing they do, maybe touched on this a little bit earlier in the question, is don't come between the manager and the client. Now, I would say that for years, having been knocking on client doors and being sent back to the consultant. And there are times when that's quite right. And it's it's not a nice thing, but quite often you use the, the consultant to give the bad news and do that. Okay, but that's you being used as that messenger boy, messenger girl thing that's out there. But don't try to position yourself consciously as the block both ways between those two, because certainly to my experience with trustees with some experience, I'd like to argue that just doesn't help anybody. It doesn't even help the consultant. So, so I'm not sure I've given you any ideas because good consultants are already doing that. <laughs> it is surprising to still see that sort of, see actually quite a lot of that sort of behavior out there. Some of it's a bit dated, just needs questioning and, and calling out to my point of view. So. Do asset managers if you want, Dan. Yeah, yeah, yeah let's do that. Let's do Work that. Come on. Okay, not listening. Listen, 
listen. And I did. So we removed the consultant out of the way. That's fine. You're now talking to the client. What does the client really want? Where are they coming from? If you can't do that, great. That's fine. That's good. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. Nice to meet you. Nice to pitch to you. We'll come back another day with something else. Be that. You can't pick up the phone and saying, hey, I've got a new product. It does not work in this market. Really, really doesn't work. You need to appreciate where the client's coming from. You don't need to be an expert. But you need to appreciate what they're doing. And yeah, product products and solutions we can talk a long time about. You can, nothing wrong with a product if it fits that strategy you've already got. But be prepared to say, what I've got doesn't meet what you want to have. And come back again. Because, you, again, time is precious and relationships are precious. Speak our language. Understand that wider situation. Again, I think you're generally a lot better now. So the, the broader relationships you're going to have, you've got people who understand the UK pension fund industry. Although, as UK pension fund, or just DB pension funds relatively decline as an asset class, certainly as a growth asset class, let's make sure asset managers, you've still got people there who are talking the language of the client that's out there. And feel free to disagree. If the, the client says this and you believe it differently, there is nothing wrong with saying we disagree from our point of view. The consultant, we disagree from our point of view. In many ways, we want to see that, not creative tension, but just discussion and debate around this. And the last bit, and this is going to sound a little bit, actually it's not sad, I've still got the scars on my back from all this, service is vital. I'm not just talking about getting the reporters in there. It's the experience of onboarding, of being boarding, of the way that errors are dealt with, reporting and everything else is huge and vital. And a lot of managers will really firefight very, very well when something's not going well. And you'll get the senior people. And people truly believe it and truly want to make it happen. But the big thing I think asset managers as a whole forget is how interconnected this industry is. So professional trustees are the easy one. If I've got an issue on one scheme, then I'll fill that elsewhere. My colleagues will fill that elsewhere, 130 schemes that we've got. But the scheme secretaries probably also work on others as well. The consultants, there's huge connectivity that's out there. And service is, well, poor, unresponsive, unthinking service is an easier way to put yourselves on the sideline, even the investment performance, to be honest, in most cases. So speak, speak and connect with us. So hopefully that's a bit helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. And I suppose on that final point, particularly with a, a bigger move towards passive investing, I think service sort of comes out as even more important because you can't hide behind excess performance. Yes, yes, you're, you're right there. Yeah. So clearly you're, but the sort of service I'm talking about is not, oh, the report's a little bit late and you know, they, 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 they're not... <laughs> Or whatever you know, the fees are a little bit high it's things like you know i want to give you business but you've put so many hoops in my way to go and on board with you so it's just it's just hard hard to do so perform excessive stupidly high performance could oversee you that as can the access to assets more importantly these days the access to assets the clients really need to have if you can buy the world's best renewable power assets i may forgive you more than if you're just running an index fund but don't use that as an excuse so don't try it across my table so. Graham, this has been a fantastic conversation. We're coming towards the end of the episode now. What's the one thing that you would like listeners to take away from today's discussion? Trustees are not the impediment to better decision-making that's out there. If it is, challenge and push back. It's too lazy to say, oh, but they're trustees and they're slow and they're sleepy and don't know what they're talking about. Not the case. I love that. That's great. I mean, there have been so many good insights. I was really interested to see which one you were going to pick, actually, because there's probably 10 or 12 things you could have picked, but I love that you settled on that one. Graham, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? Fine. In my experience, the world's very, very, very best investors are right 55% of the time and wrong 45 They don't tend to be working in the institutional space. So institutional space, I'll give you 52 48 So 
almost every decision a good investor makes has got a 50-50 chance of being right or being wrong. Now, we wouldn't go to a, a dentist with a 50-50 record. We wouldn't even go to an actuary with a 50-50 record to sell there. This is a difficult – investing right correctly is a very, very hard thing to do. So, A, when you find it, be prepared to pay for it. But, B, recognize that a number of the decisions are going to have to be revisited, retimed, changed as the world changes around that's out there. You can't be definitive about these things. And at 52, 42, 52, 48, is before costs. So it almost becomes a 50-50. not saying you shouldn't do it as a result, but it informs everything you're going to do. Because discussions the investment committees have this year will look silly and naive in a year's time. No matter how good they are, that is the way of the world. Mm. Similar to how listening back to podcasts that we recorded two years ago can can sound slightly misinformed as well. But I suppose it comes back to your point about being nimble, doesn't it, Graham, in terms of revisiting those decisions as as time goes on. Final question from us. What recommendations do you have for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts? Fine. Okay, I'm going to go for for the books bit just because I tend to listen. I listen to a lot of audio books now, a bit more than reading. So I've got two which are sort of currentish. The the first is from the Oxford Oxford University team who are putting together the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's a book called Vaxers by Sarah Gilbert and Catherine Green. Excellent book. Not overly technical. You have to sort of have a cold towel occasionally, but really well written. The human side of the science behind vaccine. And actually on the similar sort of theme, but the other side of the story is a, a book by a lady called Alina Chan, who's a medic from the US, and, and Matt Ridley, the journalist, called Viral, which is about the case for the origin of COVID and where and how it came, without being hysterical by any means. Actually far more technical than vaxxers. You really need a cold towel for some bits of this, but really quite insightful. And I'm going to step a third one in on the back of the conversation we had earlier, which is a book, and this is quite old now, but anybody who wants to look about the history of investing and why we are where we are now, there's a book called The Death of Gentlemanly Capitalism by a guy called Philip Auger. I think he was a big man at Phillips and Drew at the time. Basically, the time of Big Bang and how the whole world changed there. It's not ancient history. It does inform a lot about what we see in the investment world now. So a few things to keep people going over the Easter holiday. And that third book, Graham read the spine off off the bookshelf behind him that we were discussing just before we went on air. So, yeah, brilliant. I was saying I can't quite read the spines on on the books on the shelf. So Graham had to explain what some of them were. But thankfully, they were quite investment focused. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're impressing us with your actuarial tables as well that were all up there or your, your historical actuarial books. So, uh, yeah, you didn't give us any of those. I'm not quite that sad, Dan. Come on. Yeah, no, but I love that third recommendation. I always think that the people generally in the industry should read a lot more history of the industry and it's all there, it's all available. And like you say, it's not ancient history, but people just often don't do it. So thanks for all those. Graham, it's been an absolutely brilliant conversation today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Dan, Mary. It's been a pleasure on this side as well. It's uh, always lots to talk about in this area. So I hope the audience find it interesting and I look forward to seeing you both in the flesh sometime soon. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure the audience will will enjoy this episode. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut, but do join us again next week for another episode. Take care.